Electricast. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. On this episode of Missing the Point, we're joined by former general manager of the Boston Celtics from 1984 to 1997, Jan Valk. Jan talks to us about how he first started working in the Boston Celtics front office with Red Auerbach and how he was hand-chosen by Red to be a successor as general manager. Jan will also tell us some of his favorite stories from the front office, from learning what the salary cap was, to some of his favorite draft time moves, from training for Bill Walton in 1985 to the drafting of Len Bias in 86. This is Missing the Point, episode 50. But it's all relative. Welcome into Missing the Point. My name is Joe Malkin, and tonight we have a great guest joining us. Alongside me is Rayshon Buchanan and Dave Clark, as always, our EP, Craig D'Alessandro. And with us, we have Jan Volk. Some of you may know the name, but after this interview, you'll all know it. Jan Volk, who grew up in Newton, Massachusetts, born in Davenport, Iowa, is a graduate of Columbia Law School and began working with the Boston Celtics shortly after graduating in 1971. Early on, he worked as a ticket sales director, manager of equipment purchases, which is not an easy job, traveling secretary, which is not an easy job, business manager, and general counsel for the team. In 1976, he was promoted to vice president. In 1980, he was named assistant general manager to the general manager who was Red Auerbeck. Not an easy job, Jan. Following the 1984 NBA draft, Red Auerbeck retired as Celtics general manager. And on July 11th, 1984, Jan Volk was named general manager of the best franchise in basketball history. As the Celtics general manager, Volk was a part of three NBA championships and saw the team win a total of five in his entire tenure with the franchise. Jan left the team in 1997 and three years later started his own photography business, sports picks, photography, and for the last 21 years, 22 as we discussed, Jan, he has been shooting photography for high schools, colleges, and the Cape Cod Baseball League and many other organizations. Jan Volk, welcome into Missing the Point. Good to be here. Glad, glad you could make it. So, do, do you have that that intro in writing? I mean, yeah, you want me to send it to you? I, you know, might use it again. I, I, we're going to have to. I mean, I, I talked to you enough. I, we're going to have to do that, huh? So, uh, Jan, we want to we want to start at the beginning. So, you graduated Columbia Law, and uh, all of a sudden, you were working for the Boston Celtics. How did that come about? Well, let me step back a little bit. When I was in college, I, I went to Colby. And um, I took a course that for, turned out for me to be very, very important. It was uh, not, a, um, not a typical liberal arts program. It was business law. I took a course in business law. And I was fascinated 
by what I was reading and learning and uh, eventually got a job working as an intern for a local law firm. And I worked hard and I, I decided, you know what, this is what I want to do. And so I, I applied, I got into Columbia halfway through my tenure there, let's say a year and a half into the program, I started to think a little differently about what I wanted to do. And I wasn't sure that this is what I wanted to do. And I knew that getting my degree was important, that passing the bar was important, but then I was going to maybe decide, maybe I was going to do something else or try something else. And that's exactly what I did. And I ended up working for the Boston Celtics. And that was a, um, a progression. It was nonstop. It was 18, 19 hours a day. And it was a great experience for somebody who had no experience, which is which was me. I became an expert in the field because I knew a little bit. <laughs> you didn't know you need to know all that much. But eventually, Red started to give me more and more things to do. The most significant turning point, maybe one of the one of the the key epiphanies in my life occurred the first year I was there working uh, for the Celtics in January of that year, January 1971. Red was sitting in uh, a box. He would sit at the garden and we were playing a team. I don't know who the other team was. I know it was not the Phoenix Suns, but I also know that Red's guest in his box was Jerry Coangelo, who at the time was a general manager of the Suns. And I got summoned in the middle of the first period. I got summoned by Red to the locker room. Now, I'd been working there maybe five months, not much more. I had certainly been in and out of the locker room a bunch of times every game, but I had never been summoned to the locker room. And I was never in the locker room before with Red Auerbeck all by ourselves. And he looks at me and he said, you're a lawyer, right? <laughs> I said, well, <clears throat> sort of. What, what, do you, what do you need? Well, he had, it turned out he had made a deal with Jerry Colangelo that uh, involved a lot of contingencies and he needed a lawyer. And the team's lawyer was, this was a Sunday afternoon. The team's lawyer was somewhere skiing. And in 1972, if you were skiing, you might as well be on the moon. <laughs> couldn't reach him, couldn't reach the uh, associates, any of the associates. And Red was stuck with me. He gave me a, a list of the term sheet of what um, they had agreed to. And as I said, it had contingencies. It was not all going to be determined that day. So we had to, we had to have something that was going to have a life to it. As it turns out, what we did, you couldn't do now. It's the, the league rules wouldn't allow you to do it. But they did then. I left the uh, locker room, went back to the office, found one of my friends from law school who had five months experience as compared to my zero. And we cobbled together a contract. And ultimately, Jerry Coangelo signed it. And ultimately, it was executed upon. And what it was, was the trading of uh, the uh, draft rights to Charlie Scott to Phoenix for Paul Silas. And that was a turning point for a number of things. That was a turning point for the team and a, clearly a turning point for me because Red, you know, Red was a smart guy. He used his personnel very effectively and he looked and saw, wow, this is a guy, he, I mean, he's here every day. He did a pretty good job with this contract. And you know what? I'm already paying them. Sounds like a good idea. So that's how my career kind of jump-started, got jump-started. Because there was a period where Red did everything, right? Like, you know, before you got there, famously, he was scouting other teams, you know, scouting college players, like doing absolutely everything on the list. So he, like, when to feel hand-picked by him, you must have felt 
oh, wow, this is a job he probably has a way to do it already, you know, himself. So I better get it right. Or is it just in context, in retrospect, being like, oh, that was a big moment? Well, let me tell you something about Red that people don't readily recognize. For a guy who had the success that he had, and for a guy who had the ego that he had that he needed to have, it was a surprise. It's a surprise to people to realize that he had holes in his game that he knew about. He knew he wasn't particularly good at this or that or something else. And he hired people to fill those roles. And that was a great opportunity for me because that's he hired me in that context. And ultimately, my career evolved as the business was evolving. There's no better way to learn than to be a participant in something like, like running a team franchise when nobody else really knows how to do it either. Yeah, you're kind of building the plane while you're flying it, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe not quite that, but but it, it, nobody else got hurt, but there were mistakes made. We made mistakes, and for the most part, we did pretty well with it. I, I The interesting thing about this, he, when, Red, when Red decided to retire, he announced it at the B'nai B'rith dinner, which was a, a charitable event that was held each year prior to the first uh, game at a, at a you know, nice venue and lots of people, maybe 2000 people. And he was, he would always speak and he was speaking. This was in, this would have been in October, maybe of 83, give or take. I think that's when it was. And he got up and announced unbeknownst to any of us that he was going to retire at the end of the year. And then he did something that just blew my socks off. In front of these 2,000 people, and he's, he said, and I'm recommending that Jan Volk take my place. Oh, wow. You didn't even know that you were lined up. Never discussed that with me. Wow. What was your reaction at the time? Red got what he wanted most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> happens that this worked out well for me, too. When you were going to his office, when you got summoned to his office that day, did you know... It sounds like you knew at the time, oh, this is a big deal. I better not screw this up. Or is it just in con- like looking back, you're like, oh, that was a big moment. I'm much more so looking back than in, mm-hmm. in, in the moment itself. I, yes, it caught my attention. I mean, it, it was something I'd never done before. As I said, I'd never been summoned to the locker room. I'd never been in their locker room with just read. That was notable, but I didn't understand the significance that it had because, of course, it, it led to so many other things. Yeah, it led to so many things because from 1971 to, to 1979, 1980, you held a number of positions and, and very, very good. I mean, now you look at sports and you know who the traveling secretaries are. You know, you know who some of these people are. And then in 1980, he named, you know, obviously a few years later, he names you or suggests you as his successor. But in 1980, he basically sits you right next to him and that started really in that moment started one of the the best runs in the franchise's history in the 1980s. Well, that had a lot to do with the players, (laughs) much more to do with anything else. It was an interesting place to work. It was a great place to work. People who began to work at the Celtics had to understand, and most of them did, or they didn't stay very long. They had to understand that no matter what they did or how successful they were, Red was going to get the credit. In the end, that's (laughs) what was going to happen. And if you could live with that, you found yourself into a really, really mom and pop welcoming organization where everybody helped everybody else. There was no, when, in that type of environment, when you know Red's going to get the credit, and you're really 
only only opportunity for you to get that kind of credit was collectively as part of a group. You find people work together very, very effectively without worried about who's going to get the credit and who had to worry about what. And that was a, it was a nice place to be. It's funny you say that because I heard the credit for uh, this could may or may not be true. I'm, I have to hear from the horse's mouth, but I hear the credit for the way Larry Bird was drafted should go to you, though. Right. Wasn't that your side of the argument that he, you could get away with drafting him as a junior waiting a year and then I'm getting him in or am I did I hear wrong? Oh, you got well, uh, you, you got it sort of right. I mean, I knew the rules. As I said, Red knew he had holes in his game and he hired people to fill those holes. That was one of the holes that were, it was getting more and more complex. It's extraordinarily complex now. Right. But the advent of the salary cap, which came after we had drafted Larry, but the advent of the salary cap really was a significant event for me because we were capped and we had to learn it really quite quickly. Red didn't, Red, Red relied on us and relied on me to know that. And the same is, is true, as you point out, the, the issue with the draft, whether we could we could draft him or not. It wasn't that there wasn't a rule there. It had been modified. And Red didn't know that. And yes, he trusted me, but no, he didn't. And what happened is Tom Sanders popped in. Tom at the uh, Tom Sanders Satch for a period of time was the head coach for half a season or so. He He saw the two of us, two very stubborn people trying to convince the other that they were right. And the Satch had the perfect solutions and you know, call the league. They'll tell you. <laughs> and we did. And David Stern happened to be the general counsel at the time. He was not yet uh, commissioner and he verified it. So, but we were also in the right spot for that because Larry had told the world he was not coming out. He was going to go back for his senior year. And the old rule was that once he went back to school, an early entry drafty like that, the team lost their exclusive rights to him and he went back into the pool. In reality, what ultimately happened is you had the exclusive rights until the day before the next draft, which is how we drafted him. I guess he was worth the wait. Okay, it worked out. <laughs> Red, would, Red would tell you, he'd be the first to tell you he was better than I thought he was. I thought he was going to be really good is what he, what he would say, mm-hmm. but I didn't know he was going to be this good. Yeah. He was very- how do you know? And one of the, one of the best in franchise history, right? So, so any franchise history, any yeah, yeah you're absolutely right. I, I think I want to. I still want to stick with the seventies. I know we, we kind of touched around different things that happened in the seventies, and you know, you mentioned the Charlie Scott, uh, Scott Charlie Scott trade. Excuse me for Paul Salas, who you know was one of the better bench players that we've had here in, in Boston. We came on to become a great coach later on in the NBA as well. But obviously, you know, there were, there was two championships in the seventies and they won in 74 and 76 under Tom Heinsohn's uh, tutelage. So, you know, what, what would you say was the better team out of the other, those two? And, you know, do you think Tommy Heinsohn should have stayed longer as the coach there? Cause I know he was only there for about four or five seasons. Well, you know, I, I, I've, I've had questions like that, but never would be comparing 74 and 76. A lot of lot of similarity. When you've got a your center's Dave Cowens, I mean you've got a you've automatically got a, a huge step towards that. Boy, I tell you, I don't think I can choose there. I think that was an extraordinary team. You know, they were small, they ran the break, they were very active and they played hard with talent. So I'm going to beg off that. Uh, as far as Tommy is concerned, you know, Tommy would be the first to tell you that in the end, coaches are hired to be fired. And it takes a while. It, it, it takes a while to burn out 
but they all, most of them do in one way or another. And it's usually a consequence of having been with the same players over a uh, protracted period of time where there's a lot of the cajoling that goes on. In Tommy's case, I think the players um, got tired of his interaction with the referees. But in the end, he was very supportive of his, of his players, very much so. I, I think they appreciated it much more so after he had left. I know that, for example, Jojo, who got traded, ultimately came back and he, he, he saw how special it was playing for Tommy and he missed it. Yeah, no, that, that's totally understandable. Cause I, I think I look, you know, I remember looking back just through. I was I wasn't around, but just looking through different games. You know, it. I, I don't. You can speak more to this, but I feel like possibly the best team maybe didn't even win, and I think that was like the 72-73 team that went sixty-eight and fourteen, but lost to the Knicks in the conference finals. So, you know, is there any? Do you think there's any truth to that, or like? Cause I feel like they, they, that's another team that could have won another championship. I feel like to go to win sixty-eight games and not win is like wow. That's that's crazy. Yeah. Correct me now because you've been looking and I haven't been. Was that the series where John Havlicek dislocated his shoulder or uh, separated his shoulder? It, it might have been. I can't remember off the, off the top of my head. I just know yeah, they was. lost. And he, he had to shoot with his other hand. That was that series. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. so that 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 was, you know, your best player is out. He, he missed, I don't remember how many games he missed, but maybe it was four in the final. And not in the final, the conference finals. And we ended up going to seven games. And, and he that's the first thing that he came back. And he struggled. He was he was he was hurt. He was hurt. He tried, but he couldn't play. And what year was it that Havlicek had it written into his contract that he wouldn't practice on a certain floor down near the Cape? <laughs> <laughs> you really want me to say? Uh, you know, well, you and I, you and I have talked about it before. I told these guys, and they were like, "What is that floor made of?" And I told them, and they kind of understood. So, well, yeah, one part would be cement. One, one, one part of the equation would be that he's made out of cement. But yeah, uh, no, John figured it out pretty quickly because what he did, that was for training camp. That was at Mass Maritime. I'll, I'll, with, there, I said it. Okay. It was a long, it was a long time ago. It's fine. <laughs> uh, but John, the next year, was a free agent. He, hadn't, he wasn't going anywhere. But he waited to say to sign his contract until we were done with double sessions and we're, we were back home. We weren't playing uh, on that floor. It was a tough floor to play on. Yeah, well, I, I can tell you it's still a tough floor to play on. But, I mean, I'm not as good of a basketball player as John Havlicek. I mean, contrary to popular belief, but I'm not as good as John Havlicek. So It worked out for him. He got all that longevity out of it. You know what I mean? Not a lot of guys playing multiple eras, like 15 seasons. You know, he took Body worked out. I'm curious, Jan, the, you know, you guys draft Larry Bird, you have these great 70s teams, you draft Larry Bird, things are looking up. Everybody knows like the much publicized then kind of falling out between Red and the new owner when they did the that weird franchise switch. Brown, I think was his name. I'm just curious to know your perspective on that because the way you seem to talk about Red, it seems like you were probably pretty confident he was going to come out on top in that battle of wills, even though he wasn't, you know, the owner of the club. You know, I'm just curious your perspective of it, like how it, like how it, when it all went down, like the team, you know, Larry Bird, young star, couple of losing seasons, but like overall, they're still the Boston Celtics. He's still Red Auerbach. Like, where were you in all this? You know, I have to think this out here as to what year that was. It was 79, I think, when that, or 78, 78. I'm not sure Larry was playing yet. I think you had drafted him, but then you had to wait a year. And then it was 
So then it was that year that the, that the swap happened. Yeah, I think it was before he ever laced him up mm-hmm. for the Celtics. So, uh, it, it, but Red Red was really was pushed to, to the brink. Mm-hmm. And he did have, he said he had, I wasn't there. He had a ride with a cab driver to the airport who convinced him he should stay. That's what Red said. I have no contrary evidence that he didn't. I also don't know for sure that he ever did. I'm going to find that cab driver and give him a medal or the key to the city or something. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, but where were you in all this in, in the tension? You know, like, I mean, did you think, were you pretty convinced he was going to leave at, at one point? Because you, you were Red's guy, right? So it was- I, it's hard to, it's hard to put myself back in that spot. I, I was worried, but I wasn't really concerned about my job. I was concerned about what was, what was happening to the South. We all really found ourselves the keepers of a public trust. What we were doing is we were trying to make the most out of what was a what was was despite who really who actually owned it, they were all owners. All of our, our fans had vested interests. They all had emotional ties, as though they owned it. So th- there was a lot of it's not pressure, but there was a lot of lot of responsibility in that concept, context to get it right. Yeah, we talk so much on this show about the kind of strange difference between the Celtics fan base and the Patriots fan base and the Red Sox fan base and how the Celtics are kind of unique and singular in a way that, you know, the the Boston Celtics, for better or for worse, they get a lot more slack about certain things than like, say, the Patriots would, but then they're also like more harshly criticized in other areas. Like it's a kind of a singular and unique fan base. Do you think, did you experience that when you were working with them? Or is it more like you, you can take Boston sports fans as the sum of, of their parts? Well, well, I, I don't have fans in any respect, but I thought the fans were terrific for us, but we were also successful. So I, you know, I, I, I don't think I, I did quite the elaborate analysis that maybe somebody else did, or maybe that you were doing. We had season ticket holders. We had waiting lists to get tickets. We experienced something that none of those other franchises did, nor did any others with the possible exception of the Green Bay Packers and only in name only. And that is that we, we were a publicly held company. For a long time, we had a public offering in 1984. It intrigued us as to how that was going to change our lives because now we had thousands of actual, real, honest to goodness money invested owners. And it wasn't a problem. We recognized that the, the folks that had an emotional um, investment in the Celtics were a stronger, had stronger ties than those that had economic interests in the Celtics as fans. Many of them, there were some crossovers, but the people, the fans themselves, they're special. They have, there is a certain amount of blind faith that goes with that in any team. And it's great when you can live up to that blind faith. And look, the teams of the, in Patriot history, the last 20 years, they're pretty darn good in, in terms of living up to those expectations. And Celtics did the same. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that point there, Jen, for sure. Want to take it back to, to 1980 and kind of keep the theme with the blind faith, right? So I, I believe that's the year that Mikhail got swapped for Joe Barry Carroll or, or they got they got Parrish in the deal? Not direct swap. It was a draft choice swap. Draft choice swap, okay. So we drafted, excuse me, we got the draft pick with which Kevin McHale was drafted, but there was no certainty to it, obviously. It was third pick. So very much like what happened with Tatum. Yes. Okay. Okay. Got you. Okay. Very very similar. 
Yeah. So what was the process? Like, was Mikhail going to be the guy all along or like, was there anybody else you guys were looking at in, in that year's draft? Like, and how did you guys acquire Robert Parrish? I know it was a trade with Golden State, right? Is that, is that how we got? Yeah, it was it? a trade with the trade with Golden State. We had the third pick and I think the 14th. I'm not, I'm not hundred percent sure, but I think that. And what we did is we traded that, uh, that number, we, that number, excuse me, we had the number one pick. Mike, let's step back. We had the number one pick and the 14th pick. We traded the number one pick to Cleveland for, no, excuse me, Golden State, Golden State to, for the rights to the third pick. And Robert Parrish. And then we had the 14th pick, which I think went to Robert Parrish. I think that's how it was evened out. That's that's pretty crazy to, to put that big three together in one, you know, basically. Yeah, in one, one deal. Yeah, that, that's that's awesome. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I I think about that now. Like that's that's got to be a top five deal. And I'm, like, it's, it's 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 like I know it's easy to say because you're on here, but I mean I would say it if you weren't on here. Like that that to me it's a steal. Obviously, you, you don't think it's a steal in the moment, but to get the two thirds of the big three that essentially dominated the '80s, that went to four straight finals in the '80s, like that's it is incredible. So I mean, so kudos to you and the rest of the organization. For, for making that happen. <laughs> fairness, in fairness, Robert was a throw-in, much more so. There was, Robert was an underachiever at the time, and Red was always, made, did recognize the big guys take a while to come back, to, to, to reach potential. And that's what, but we were taking a chance. And we were taking a chance that, uh, I'm trying to think now, it was second pick, I think, was uh, the Jazz. Was it the Jazz? It, yeah, it was Utah, Daryl Griffith. They took Daryl Griffith, yeah. So we had a we had a hope that we would not that we wouldn't have taken Daryl uh, Griffith with the with the third pick if that had happened, but we really wanted Mikhail. Well, and, and you got him. And and you know, yeah, and, and they were the Gophers were under some sort of restrictions by the NCAA. They could not, I don't think they played in, in the match Mar- March Madness. And so he was, he was really selected based on what we saw or what our scouts saw. There was no showcase for him then. So that might, that might have enabled you to grab him like a little bit lower. Yeah. 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 But I mean, like I said, that, that, that ties into the blind faith, right? It's just like, it's like, okay, <laughs> like we've seen the year before this guy's talented. Let's just see what he can do. And then, you know, really, I mean that, that 80, 81 year, you know, they, you know, you guys go on to win the championship. So, you know, can you speak about just how, I think about the Philadelphia series more so than, than the series against the Rockets. Cause I know, you know, that's the series where it got really feisty. I know Maxwell had gotten into the stands with the fan and, you know, I think that was game six, if I'm not mistaken. So it was you know, yeah, so you just speak to like you know really just that series and like did you guys think you were gonna get past Philly? Because I know Philly had just made the finals the year before. You know they they were their Eastern Conference champions. So uh, can you just speak about to those battles with Philly and just uh, how talented they were at that time. As I recall, we were down three, three, to, three one. to one. Yeah, mm-hmm. and with 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 game five and seven in Boston, if we were to get to it, so we came back to Boston. I think we were in those three games. As I recall, we were we were down two or four points with two minutes to go in each of those games. We were, we came from behind in each one of those games. The one that I do remember, you mentioned the max excursion into the, into the cheap seats. Well, actually into the expensive seats in the first row (laughs) was, was in the midst of something else that happened midway through the third period. We, we were down double digits in the third period. And this, this is uh, game six in, in Philadelphia and the, 
PA announcer, I'm trying to think of his name, Dave Zinkoff, who have, I don't know if, if any of you remember him. Do you know any? No, idea but I, I know he was very famous for how we call, especially opposing players' uh, names. So what is it, yeah, Magic was, with Bird? And, you know, so yeah. He, he was, you know, he was there, Johnny, most only as a play by play announcer. Yeah. He was very partial. He was a very decent guy and, and, and really understood. He was a very, he was very professional, but he did things like Bailey Howell played for the, um, for the Celtics, was a terrific player. And whenever he would commit a foul, Dave Zinkoff would say, and that was a Howell foul. And every time they, <laughs> and, you know, it just, the, the crowd loved it. But he made an announcement, not on his own, marketing department, to remind fans that tickets for game one of the finals would be on sale right after the conclusion of tonight's game. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And we heard that in the huddle. Guys were saying, well, did I hear that right? And it got, it got their attention. And we came, we came back for a win there. And we ended up, ended up winning it at home, as they said, in each case coming from behind. We, we've used that analogy when we go back and talk about pa- the Patriots, especially when we talk about the 2001 season, the Pittsburgh Steelers and the St. Louis Rams basically punching their ticket to the Super Bowl uh, before they even get there. So that's kind of the basketball equivalent. It was happening a lot earlier than 2001. So uh, big mess up by the Philadelphia marketing department, but you'll take it. Yeah, but they... I- yeah, it seems like they have an issue of they have a thing of doing that because even you know recent day a couple of years ago when they faced Philadelphia and it was how this played Philly and um, they was, yeah the confetti just fell so <laughs> I guess there's just something going on in Philadelphia they just yeah. think that they like to call things prematurely so you know you know this the the Red Auerbach story with things like that and when we were out in uh, L.A. in '69 which this is the this is the team this turns out to be, uh, be Russell's last game we didn't know that at the time but he. He had determined it was. He hadn't shared that when they were. It was Sam Jones by Sam had declared this was his last game. Mm-hmm. And in the while warming up before game seven, they had the balloons. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, I don't remember who it was, but somebody saw a memo piece of paper on the on the, right up against the, the court on the floor and picked it up. And it was a memo to the uh, to staff about what was going to happen when they won the game that night. And it was uh, the balloons would come down from whatever the USC marching band would come in from one side and playing happy days are here again. I mean, it was to that detail. <laughs> and, um, wow. and apparently there were, I guess, 6,000 balloons in the ceiling. Mm-hmm. And now I, I, I remember it one way and it may have been that it didn't happen this way. <laughs> but my recollection is after we, after we won and Red's running on the court and he's excited much more so than normal, because this was an accomplishment. This was a team that really, really had to claw and scratch and 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 just, you know, get itself in a position where it had a chance to win, and they did. But the ABC announcer was Chris um, Schenkel, and he said something to Red like, "So Red, what do you think? You know, you guys came from from behind. You you know, you you were finished fourth in the conference. Uh, da, 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 da. What do you think about this win?" He says, "Well, I got just one question. What are they going to do with the effing balloons?" <laughs> <laughs> and and I believe it was on live TV, and I believe it got through. 
I'm not yeah, sure. That's yeah, great. That's tape no, back then. But, right, right, exactly. <laughs> but also, one of the, I think that's the, I think I want to say that's the same press conference when um because obviously, like I said, they talked to the guy Jack and Bill Russell's up there, and you hear you hear Red Albrecht in the background saying one more time, one more time, and it's just like it's one of the most like you know one of the most notable you know quotables that you can hear from a, a locker room after the finals win. So yeah, you know, appreciate you sharing that story. Well, it, uh, it, it, it was something I will never forget. It was also a pretty happy moment for all of us, everybody yeah. involved. John, John Havlicek made a comment to me at one point in time that I, I hadn't really thought about, but he said in, in the context of a playoff game, he said, you know, I know it's much harder for you to sit through this than it is for me to play through this. And I said, what, what are you talking about? He said, you know, I get out there and I play. I'm, I'm nervous. But once that ball is, is, is in play for the first time, I'm not nervous anymore. I just play. I said, you don't have an outlet. You have to watch and hope I do well. That's a good point. That's a good point. I said, he's in control of his own destiny out there with the ball. It's like you, you're, your destiny's in someone else's hands once that whistle goes. So it's a good and point. He recognized that. And, then, and, you know, and it's not arrogance. It's confidence. Well, and, and you you let, you were with this team during a time where where your your hopes and dreams were in the hands of John Havlicek, Cedric Maxwell, Larry Bird, Robert Parrish, Kevin McHale. I mean, you can't really have much better company there. Yeah, can't do better than that. No, <laughs> so, the Lakers are pretty good though. The yeah, the Lakers are all right. I mean, they've they've done okay over the years. You know when. When the, 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 apropos of nothing, I guess when when Elgin uh, Baylor passed away uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was there was an article um, that ran. There were a number of articles chronicling his history and stuff. But then Bob Ryan did one, and he talked about the fifth. I think it was in the fifth game. Elgin scored sixty one points in that game. Well, I remember that from a slightly different point of view, and I remember what happened in the locker room afterwards in the Lakers locker room. Rod Rod Hundley, you remember Rod Hundley? You know anybody know who he is? No, I, only guys I remember on my team is just Weston Baylor, honestly. Yeah, well, he 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 had he just he passed away maybe two or three years ago. He was the he was a color commentator for years on the for the Utah Jazz. He was a player though, right, Chan? Hot Rod Hundley. Hot Rod. He was a player with a great sense of humor, and that's mm-hmm. I'm pointing out that. But when he was playing in eighty in in sixty two, I think it was uh, sixty no sixty. No, it's 65, I think. I think it was 65. I, I stand corrected. Correct myself. Maybe I'm wrong. You know, both. <laughs> he was, the game was, game was over. They, we had beaten them in game five. And he's muttering to himself. He's toweling down. He's got a, a horde of uh, media around him. And he's saying, I don't know. I don't know how, I don't know what to say. I don't know how we beat these guys. I mean, I have no idea how we beat these guys. Between Elgin and me, we had 63 points and we still couldn't beat them. <laughs> 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 yeah, uh, I, I, mean, I mean, yeah, but I, I mean, I know, you know, speaking of Celtics Lakers, I mean, we, we, you know, we can't have you on here and not talk about that. But obviously in the 60s, you know, it was dominated by Boston, right? I mean, the first eight times they met, you know, they were eight and no, you know, Jerry West was one in eight or one in nine in his finals appearances, you know, but then, you know, to the, to the time that you become the assistant GM and then the GM, you know, they faced each other in, in, in 84, 86, and then 87. So Larry, Larry Bird had made a quote, I forget on what documentary it was, but he mentioned that in game seven to 84, um, I think when they won 111 and 102, he felt that's the only time that there was no way that LA was going to come in there and win. So I wanted to ask you, like, did you feel that same way? And just how much did, how much did you fear the Lakers as someone being in the front office as opposed to not being on the court? Yeah, explain to me, let's step back. 
What did what did Larry say? So Larry mentioned that in that game seven, when, you, um, when they won 111 to 102, he mentioned that that was the only time that he felt that there was no way that L.A. was going to come in there and beat them and win that game seven. So I just wanted to ask you, like, just how, how did did you did you feel that same way? And like, you know, what, what was your what was your fear uh, as someone that was in the front office of the Lakers? Because like you said, they were a great team. But did you have that same feeling in, um, in, in that first finals match of 84? I always had a respectful view of, of the of the opponents. If you're if you if you if you, if you they're all great teams. There's there's things that, that separate them, but they're all talented. I, I sure I, I was I was concerned. The Lakers were terrific. I one of the things that I would say to people they would say you know you great job you got the best job in America and I and I agreed readily that for me that it was the best job in America. But I would have also enjoyed it a lot more if I'd known we were going to win. Right. <laughs> right. Right. So, yeah, I mean, Larry may have looked at it that way. I, I looked at that every time we we faced off with him. There was a chance of, 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 of losing to those, you know, to the to the Sixers, to the to the Lakers. You know, they there were a lot of competitive teams that we we won. Sometimes we lost. And that's look, if you're if you're if you're playing the sisters of the poor all the time, you're not going to have very good rivalries. You got there. There has to be a competitive impetus to those those types of feelings and it's one of the things that that's uh, kind of a you know, the a, it, it applies to everybody you've right. got to have players that you love to hate on the right. other team right exactly and and certainly the lakers had fewer that you love to hate until chamberlain came there was great respect for all of them and I'm going obviously way back but th- those were teams that you you could could definitely and should definitely respect but there were, you can look at a lot of the teams and you can pull out the ones that, that were loved. Right. Yeah, for, for sure. But also to another thing that kind of came to my head as you were talking, right? Because you were saying about, you know, all the teams were great and, you know, have, having a rivalry meant everything. But, you know, can you speak about how the, or to the point that maybe the Eastern Conference was more dominant than the West at that time? Because right now everyone talks about current day, talks about how the West is just so much better than the East. But can you speak about the, how dominant the East was at that time? So Atlanta, Detroit, Milwaukee, who was, who was a team that hasn't got brought up yet, you know, that team with Marcus Johnson and Jack Sigma and, you know, a city Moncrief who was picked behind Magic. Like you just speak about the, how dominant the, you know, the Eastern Conference was as opposed to the West at that time. Or, or do you agree with that? <laughs> uh, the only dominance that I really would pay much attention to is our own. Okay, <laughs> and you know, the, yeah, and we we were we were respectful for all. You know what you do is you don't play against the Western Conference teams multiple times, and you you it's it's harder to get the 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 players that you love to hate identified in the sh- in that short period of time. So there there I was just worried about ourselves. So Jim, when when you be you you're at that. Uh, the 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 start of the eighty three season, Red stands up. He announces his retirement at the end of the eighty three eighty four season. He recommends you as his replacement. On July eleventh, you're named the general manager of the Boston Celtics in nineteen eighty four. And in October, you go and make make a trade. It was one of your first um, big moves <laughs> as as Celtics GM. Is you you trade Gerald Henderson to the SuperSonics, the team that we all wish would come back in the NBA for an '86 first rounder. So you made the trade, but had to wait two years to use it. But you used it well in on Len Bias. Yeah, and and obviously we didn't have a uh, crystal ball. We couldn't tell who was going to be where. 
but we had we had identified that as a good draft for us potentially. What I'll set the record straight here on what happened, at least with respect to Gerald. We had Gerald had had a very good year in '84. He was a starting guard on the the Celtics team that beat the Lakers in seven. And uh, but he was a free agent that summer, and he didn't come to camp. And while uh, we were still negotiating, but while he was not at camp, Danny Ainge moved into the starting uh, lineup, or at least was filling the role. And it was pretty, pretty obvious that he played better as a starter, he Danny, than he did coming off the bench. And it really looked like Gerald could do both. So that was under that undercurrent, Gerald felt he should come back into camp and, and it, was, it was a good move to do so. We, we worked out a contract that was um, slightly different than what he uh, had been looking at before that he had turned down, but not appreciable. We, I don't know, I think we did this on a Thursday and he played Friday and Saturday in, in Texas. We we're in a Texas exhibition season swing and he came back on, on, Mon- on Sunday. On Monday, I got a call from a, um, a team in the Eastern Conference not a team not to be named that um, the general manager, he and I knew, knew each other well, and he wanted to know what did we, what did we sign uh, Gerald for? And it's, it's public knowledge. He just didn't, rather than calling the league, he was calling me. So I told him and he said, ah, oh, good, good, good contract. I'll tell you what, I, I, you know, I see the way Danny's playing out of uh, that starting position. I'll tell you what, if, you, if you're interested in moving Gerald, we'd give you a first round pick for him. Unsolicited, came out of nowhere. I immediately called Red. Got a conference call going with Casey, Jimmy Rogers, Red, and myself. And we decided uh, it was worth pursuing outside of conference. And we did a a quick take on what teams were likely to have over the next year or two, likely to have less than stellar seasons and would have uh, decent draft picks. Now, this was the second, I think this was only the second year that the lottery was in place. I think it was the second year. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it started in 85. Yeah. Pat, Patrick Ewan went first for that year. That's so, yeah. right. Yeah. So, so we, we, we were, were looking at a, a trade with two clubs. We identified two clubs. And we got one was, one was, I'll only give you the one that, 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 that you know. <laughs> and I'm not going with the other. One, one, I, I talked to both two clubs. And they both were interested at, for a first-round pick. Seattle, one of them came back to me and said, we'll give you a second round pick in 86. And this was now the fall of uh, 84. We'll give you, we'll give you, but we want lottery protection. This was new. We were, the whole thing was new. This was the first time I had, I had heard the phrase lottery protection. Immediately understood what, what they were talking about, but I had not factored that in. So I listened to them and then I got the call back from Seattle and they were giving me an 87 pick, but no mention of lottery protection. So I had a decision to make. And the decision I made was to try to push Seattle to, to 86 without having, you know, having, having raised the issue of lottery protection. Nobody tells Seattle about lottery protection. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody tell them that exists. <laughs> so the general manager, and I'm not going to mention his name either. But he, we got on the phone. We talked about. It, I said, "Well, I need an 86 pick." He said, "We're not going to give an 86 pick." I said, "Well, I have an offer 
for an 86 pick. Technically true. Which is true. I do have it. And and maybe I maybe we decide to take that because we think it, you know, the lottery protects only seven. Yeah, I mean, maybe not a big deal. Uh, who knows? I said, well, we're not we're not interested in, in that. I said, well, did you talk to the owner? Uh, Barry Ackerley owned the team. He said, did, did, he, did you talk to him? He said, no, I didn't. I thought, I don't want to give that pick. I said, well, do us both a favor. And then we can talk about it. Talk to Barry about it. Because I know if you lose this pick to, to this other club that's giving an 86 pick, Barry's going to know why you, why'd, you, why'd you lose out on the pick. And when you say, well, I didn't want to give up an 86 pick and he hasn't acted on it, he's going to be really ticked off. <laughs> so that's a good point all right so we hang up and now i am having serious regrets <laughs> did i overplay my hand and five minutes later i got a call back from the uh, from seattle and he, he led with this he's a good kid isn't he <laughs> oh, we got it. and that's that was the start of that so that's that's how we got that pick in that spot, as far as Len Bias, we had seen him at camp uh, a couple of years. We we knew we knew who he was. The scouting report we had was Michael Jordan, three inches taller, better outside shot. Yeah, I mean that's the question I was going to ask you. I was I've been you know excited to ask you this this whole time is, you know, there's there's across all bars in Boston right now, you know, the ones that are open, whatever. <laughs> People are still having the discussion. How good was Len Bias going to be? You know, like it's 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 a it's a, a completely codified discussion anywhere you go in in the city of Boston. People want to, you know, people are positing theories about this, and I'm just curious: is that what you think? Is it Michael Jordan three inches taller? Is that who he was going to be? Well, that's got to understand. Michael Jordan hadn't become Michael Jordan yet either, right? So, and he was certainly well regarded. We we were we were he he is who we wanted. If we had the number one pick, we did not. We had the number two pick. If we had the number one pick, we would have taken him as well. So that we, we thought a lot of him. We had seen him at Reds camp for, we had also seen Reggie Lewis in the same context. They played against each other. And uh, we, we, we liked what we saw. And interesting, just a postscript to, to, to Gerald's, um, to trading Gerald. When Seattle came in that year to play against us, it was really, it was kind of important for us to beat them because, <laughs> to, get, <laughs> yeah. to solidify our draft pick. Yeah. But they came in and they beat us. I mean, they thumped us. I don't know. We may have been the only loss we had all year in the, at home. Did Gerald played. Did he have a chip on his shoulder? Oh, yes, major league. <laughs> but, but but it's the but it was good. It was right. The game uh, was winding down. Only seconds left. He's got the ball. He's 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 pounding the the ball at midcourt, right on right on the logo. Buzzer goes off. He takes the ball as hard as he possibly can and slams it down onto the, to the logo's face. <laughs> wow. the ball goes yeah. way up in the air. And afterwards, I got asked about that. Did you see what Gerald did? And I said, yeah, I did. What would you think? I said, I, I, I can't. I, 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 nobody wants to be traded from the Celtics. I understand that. <laughs> That's a good answer. <laughs> right. Yeah, no. That, <laughs> I'd be mad too. <laughs> right. <laughs> I understand that. That's good. That's fine. And you now I don't, I, I'm not, I haven't talked to Gerald since, so I don't know any more than that. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, no, maybe, maybe he's still holding the grudge uh, on, on, on the low, but no, that, that you, you just answered it, but that, that's good to know that I think Len Bias was still going to be the pick. Cause I know Brad Doherty, I know when one, 
I think Gerald Wilkins was also in that draft. You know, that's, you know, Dominique Wilkins' cousin. So, obviously, you know, we saw the success that Dominique had. So, they're actually, aren't they, aren't, weren't they brothers? Although they were cousins, but yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe they are brothers. Yeah. I think the Knicks picked him with one of the picks that we had paid them for a free agent or some, some, because we wouldn't, it wouldn't yeah. be I think that's where it came from. Right, and and it's, and it's, it's funny because I think about you saying about that Seattle giving me the '87 pick. It's funny because they had their fifth pick in '87, and I mean I don't know if you guys would have picked them, but Scotty Pippen was there. Some guy named Scotty Pippen was picked fifth. So I mean, I, I, that would have been interesting to see how. You remember where he went? Because I don't. What what school or what? Oh no, he he got he got picked fifth fifth overall, and then he got traded for for Purvis Ellison, who was also another guy. I think Purvis Ellison was the number one pick that year, I believe. He was. So. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, he got switched for him. So I mean, that, that could have been your pick. That could have been your pick as well. If they chose to be, if they chose to give me that pick, but I don't know if you guys would have picked Pippen or not. <laughs> well, he was definitely on our radar. We were initially, he was 40 Anderson was one of our scouts had seen him maybe in his sophomore year. And I, and he was really running below the radar at that point in time. And so we had a beat on him, but uh, it was too, there was too much time. That passed, and then and, and he got known quickly. But so Dan, it, that's that's a that's a question that I have. You mentioned that you had really started looking at the '86 draft in '84. You had your eyes on Len Bias. You started scouting Scotty Pippen, or at least had seen him in his sophomore season as a general manager. What, no matter what the sport, but in in these terms, of course, basketball. When do you start look? At, how far ahead? do you look when you're looking at drafts, draft classes, and, and I guess other teams? Because you had mentioned when you looked at the Supersonics, you, you had assumed that they wouldn't be good uh, in the future. So wh- how far ahead do you look as a general manager? Well, things have changed dramatically in that, in that respect. When we talk about the mid-80s, there was occasional early entry players. But for the most part, players, if not playing four seasons, were playing three or maybe sometimes two, but very rarely did you get one-year players, one and done, and even less frequently high schoolers. But now, so so let's let's look at that. You get a body of work that, to evaluate in that context back in 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 the in the mid '80s that that scouts and general managers do not have available to them now. They the fact is that we would have most players scouted, potential players. You know, potential draftees scouted from their rookie year, not rookie year, freshman year, all the way through their declaration for the draft or their entrance to the draft after four years. That's a lot of data. And what you do is you see them develop over that time. Now they have to project that. And when you were back in in the 80s, the best players were generally speaking the four-year players. Those were the best players available. And they were playing against other seniors and maybe juniors. And they weren't playing, they weren't, you weren't, you weren't gauging their abilities against freshmen. And those freshmen, for the most part, were not being evaluated against seniors. They were, you know, they were coming up through the pipeline and they were being evaluated in that context. So it's a very, very different set of circumstances now. In, in some ways, it's easier. In a lot of ways, I think it's harder. 
do you think that's why we've seen a lot of players and kind of coming into the before we we get back into the 80s but just from a again a general manager standpoint do you think that that's why we see a lot of players who do not reach their potential or are overvalued in this day and age i i think there's there's a lot more potential for error by working with a really small set of information, very, very limited to a single season, usually. Sometimes, I mean, Kyrie Irving, and for everything that uh, may or may not, you may or may not feel about him, he was evaluated in, what, 10 games, something like that. That's it. He he did not play very much at all. Yeah, I mean, you can see their athleticism, you can see their speed, but like, you know, the sample size I'm sure you're talking about missing is like, how does he play in adversity? Like, you know, how does he play with this kind of guard? How does he play with this kind of forward? You know, like, do, would he fit in our system? Because has he played with guys that can like run the pick and roll? Like, it, you, it, it is much, I'm sure it is like more difficult in that respect. And and in, and then also in that respect, Red and consequently our scouts were ge- generally would scout players, not simply in games, but in practices as well. And Red thought you learned an awful lot about how you about a player by how he practiced. And Alan Iverson would be appalled to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> we love a good Alan Iverson practice reference here on Missing the Point. <laughs> I, I, I love it. I love it. <laughs> so I, uh, you know, it, it. I don't know where Len Bias was as a junior, but I suspect he was better as a senior than he was as a junior. I suspect he was better as a junior than he was as a sophomore and that's what we were that was both that is a circumstance we were generally evaluating players it's very interesting because we we've seen that much more as as we've come up you know we obviously we we've seen the the high school drafts or draftees the the kobe bryant's the tim duncan's the the lebron james's of the world and I, I think a lot of that with that sample size i mean those are three of the greatest players to ever play the game but to me, a little off topic and making a declaration, I, I think that it, the kids should have to go for three years and, and get that sample size and, and mature because we've seen too many busts. But I think Dave disagrees with I me. Mean, like, le- I mean, like, you don't get a lot of LeBron Jameses. He was like a grown adult man by the oh, time yeah. he was like, you know what I mean? It's like, let's just get him in there. But yeah, I, he, I see what you're saying. He had the talent of a 26-year-old when he was 15. So Right. Yeah, no, that's true. But even But even in... The 70s, 80s. I mean, Daryl Dawkins was like the, you know, he was the originator of that, right? Or one of the guys that originated that. Daryl Dawkins was was a man. <laughs> he came out of high school and he's breaking glasses and he's dunking all over the place. So, you know, like I said, but like I said, it's, it's rare to kind of find that, if, if find, find that talent. But, you know, hey, you know, it, it's, it's the inexact science and you, you just try to do the best you can with scouting and hope that, you know, you, you get the best talent possible there. So I want, I want to still stick, stick with the 80s. So now going to the late 80s, so 87, you guys face Detroit, but obviously coming off the, you know, coming off being the defending champions. But I wanted to ask, like, did you think that really after an 86, that that would be the last time you guys got to the, or got, either got to the finals or even won, won the championship? Like, did you think, did you guys think you'd be back more, many more times or like, you know, what was your thought process after 86 or even 87? We thought we were on a roll. We thought we were on a roll. We had, a, we had the team in place that we wanted and we, you know, you, 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 I, I, I think we underappreciated where we were. I think we underappreciated how we had gotten there. Four years of, of, of finals in a row is extraordinarily um, taxing on a team, whether they win or lose. I mean, physically or emotionally, like both. Is, yeah, both. Yeah. Both. There, you you don't get. You know, you make 
you, by the time you're you're logging four straight years of, of playoffs, you're you're adding how many games are you adding? You're adding twenty some games. You're 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 adding just that much more. It's all emotional. It's none of there. There are no easy games. The only thing about playoffs that is better than the regular season is that your opponent plays the same schedule. Other than that, you're playing the best of the best. And so if you get that far, the emotional drain is is significant and the physical drain is, is, is as significant. So we just, there were a lot of things that happened in 87. We, we got to the finals. That was divine in, intervention with Isaiah's pass to Larry. And what was that 88? No, that was no, 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 87. Yeah. Game, game five. Yep. Yeah, eighty-seven, and but we were we were hurt. Yeah, yeah, that's why I wanted to like, how, how hurt was Kevin McHale? Because like I know his 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 foot, yeah, big hurt, yeah. Well, the so thing, he got we, surgery. We got information. You know, again, again, you're 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 you know, you're subject to, to the vagaries of 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 chance in some in many ways. You yeah. can put yourself in the position, but he he got hurt with about a week to go in the season, and frankly, he was having an all MVP style year in 86 87 and he uh, he broke he he uh, broke the navicular bone and which i have not ever experienced but i'm told by the physicians that we consulted that it was extraordinarily painful their advice to kevin was and to and to us and we sought it together it was not going to be if kevin was going to play because he wanted to play we might not let him play but we were never going to force him to play. And what we were told was he was going to need surgery on this, this injury. The, the surgery would correct whatever he might do to it, playing on it further. But we don't think he can do that because we don't think he can play with that amount of pain. And Kevin, to his credit, sucked it up and played. And, you know, and he was, he was probably, he probably delivered at maybe 50% of capacity, of capability, but he was there and he was trying. Scott Wedman had surgery. People forget how good Scott Wedman was. I don't know if, if um, Rayshon, if, if you... Yeah, no, no, number eight, no, I, yeah, I remember coming off the bench, yep, yeah, very good, yeah. very good player. Sam Vincent, all the guys, yep. And, and and one of the things that wasn't recognized generally, but also was was uh, good about his game, was he was a very good defender as well. But... We, so we lost him. We lost. We lost Bill Walton. Broke his navicular bone, also, in subbing for Kevin in the last week of the season. Oh my God! What well, luck. So we were <laughs> we were we were struggling. We were struggling, and you know we we when you look at the eighty six draft or 80, the eighty six draft, had we signed or had he lived, Len Bias might have been that one extra player we needed in eighty seven. Yeah, yeah, especially at the forward position, because it sounds like, you know, you guys are hurting right at the forward position. Could have come well, in for he, minutes. Yeah, no, he was, he, he would have made a significant difference, whether or not it would have been the difference, I don't know. But we were, we were about one player short, and that yeah. would be a player. On the other hand, Casey was a terrific coach for, for with, with uh, veteran players, but not as confident putting rookies into, in, into uh, positions of, of importance. So I'm not sure what, how much we would have gotten had he um, was was Reggie Lewis was he was he a rookie by now he got drafted in '87 
He got drafted in '87. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So he wasn't even on the team. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm like, yeah. I mean, it, like I said, there definitely was battles with with Detroit. I mean, I know that, that that team was tough, but like you said, if you're battling injuries, there's only so much you can you can do. Kind of reminds me of what happened with the 2010 Celtics as well. You know, Garnett's coming off injury, Perk gets hurt at the, in, in the last minute. And it kind of just it kind of just alters you know everything. So if um, if I'm suddenly forgetting his name, if he had been in shape. I'm trying to think the center. Not, not Perkins? No, no, not Perkins. Not Perkins. This is back in the day or? Um, in that in that year, that, uh, that 2010. Oh, Rasheed Wallace probably. Rasheed Wallace, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey. yeah. 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 I, 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 t- <laughs> I, I, I totally, yeah. totally agree. Rich John, you said that back then. I, yeah, really, I can totally, remember yeah. you. Yeah. Uh-huh. Totally agree. <laughs> we just yeah. we just he, he, tried, he tried to play. Thing. No, but he tried to play his way into shape. You know, he signed. He signed a nice little deal with us in the offseason in that year. He tried to play his way into shape, and it just didn't work. So I, I, I totally agree. <laughs> so Jan, as we as we have have been now talking for a long time and really getting an awesome look inside the Boston Celtics uh, in the seventies and eighties. And, you know, your, your time with the Celtics in the nineties came to a a close towards the the end of the nineties in 1997. And, you know, it, it kind of, as, as you mentioned with coaches, you know, at, at some time, the, the time is over for, for every relationship. And what, what would you say about your, you know, close to three decades with the Boston Celtics. Well, I think I said earlier that I had the best job in America for me. And I, and I, re- and I recognize that fairly regularly, openly expressing it to anybody who would listen. By the same token, when I left, I left because Rick Pitino came on board and he cleaned house. And I left that off the, the Celtics office that day, frankly, to my surprise, feeling about three inches taller a weight of had been lifted from my shoulders and I hadn't experienced understood that, but I understood it very well. And I frankly took some time off and just recharged because it, it takes, it takes a lot out of you over time. Yeah. And, and you know, you and I talked on the phone last week about how when you were there, the, the challenges were very different. You know, you and I have talked about your run-ins with the media, uh, the Dan Shaughnessy's, the Bob Ryan's, the the uh, Jackie McMullins of the world. I think, in fairness, we got to put Dan in one group, <laughs> Jackie in an, in a another group, and I'll leave it to you to decide which you like better. Uh, so, sure. and, and and Dan knows I. As I said to you when we talked a week ago, uh, Joe, I could be friends with Dan. I, I like Dan. I just don't want to be business <laughs> colleagues for me. <laughs> he just has a different. He just has a, a different mindset, different goals. And well, you're you're not the only general manager of a Boston sports team to have ever said that because. Danny might say the same, <laughs> but you know, and, and that's, that's kind of where I was going with that is that Danny, Danny has to deal with, and I, we're not going to talk about Danny, but just general managers now in, in general deal with such so many different challenges and you had your own back then. Sometimes yours was that and you told me a story last week where it was kind of, you were getting information secondhand where now everyone gets information firsthand and sometimes it's completely false and incorrect information. It's just a different way of getting it there. And it, and that takes a toll. And you know, that, that happened with, with the, the Celtics this week where there was 
rumors about a player. And then, you know, Brad Stevens comes out and says, well, that was on Twitter. Well, you guys had me in Indiana a week ago. So uh, just (laughs) as we close out, you know, what, what were the challenges as a general manager or even as a player with the, the media back then, were they, were they similar to today? I don't think so. I, 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 can't tell you that I have a good enough grasp of what goes on on a from a, a team's perspective, but I think you'd you'd agree that want my my goal my goal was my uh, to make sure that every media member had my home phone number. I don't particularly want to hear from them, but I do want to hear from them if they're if they're running with something and they're not sure to check it out because it's always it was always better for everybody. That we that that we correct those kind of errors before they become public because they become very difficult to deal with often when they're 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 out there floating in in the air and they get and and and, and they get a life of their own. I would imagine it's very difficult, if not impossible, to get out ahead of stories in the same way now as it was then. I I, I agree. I can't. I I as I as I said, I don't really can't really appreciate how difficult it is. I know it's difficult. I know it's yeah. different than what, than what we had. Very, very infrequently did I, were things released either through TV or through newspaper articles that we hadn't had an opportunity to discuss with the author. And, and that was, and we had a pretty good relationship with people. I, I, I felt several things that first, and different than Red and different than Dave Gavitt, both who kept pretty much arm's length from the medium. My view was that, and it, and I, again, I don't know how it flies now, but that the, the people in the media were hired by media outlets to report on the team. As a consequence, they have to write something every day. They've got to work every single day. And if you don't help them, you don't recognize that they're, that they, you know, that, that they have to do that. You're going to find yourself in adversarial circumstances where they're where you don't help them, and they're going to have to figure something out on their own. You may not like what they do, and so I was very conscious of that kind of interaction with with media folks, and I think it worked. I think it worked well, but we didn't we didn't have a perfect world then either. No, it's, you know, there were things that came out that were just wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. And I want to respectfully say this. I have to say you dodged a bullet by not being a part of the Rick Pitino era. I'll just leave it at that. We won't go any further. Like I said, you, you can have your own thoughts about that, but I'll just say respectfully, I'm glad that you didn't have to go through the Rick Pitino era. We had to go through it as fans, even being young kids, but it was it, it was bad. But the, the final question I have for you, Jan, is so obviously, you know, 96, I think that that was the final draft that you had before, you know, leaving the GM role. And you know, that was, that was one of the deeper draft classes really of all time. So people talk about 84, people talk about 96 and they talk about 2003. So 96, you know, pretty, pretty top heavy, you know, AI goes first, Ray Allen goes fourth, Stephon Marbury. And then, you know, Southern's at six pick Anton Walker. But didn't, guy, didn't, didn't Ray go fifth? Yeah, yeah, Ray went fifth, but again, he got swapped for Stephon Marbury. And then yeah. some, some guy named Kobe Bryant dropped down to, to 13th. I uh, got drafted by Charlotte. So I, I know that he did work out for the Celtics, but so in, in hindsight, you know, were you impressed with his workout and, you know, was it, was it a strong consideration to draft Kobe Bryant at number six? Uh, yes. And yes, but no, he was, I, we didn't take a chance on him and we should have, obviously when we say take a chance on him, he was a high school kid and we had not had um, a lot of experience with high school kids. What we had was I, we had Antoine Walker sitting there. 
And now, you know, he was only finishing his sophomore year, so he was like only a couple of years wiser, if you will. But no, I, we we benefited in having the opportunity to to draft Larry Bird because teams ahead of us didn't have confidence enough in what they had to, to wait for for Larry and f- for a year, and we unfortunately. Did the same thing with respect to Kobe, and man, I regret that. Larry Bird is your Kobe Bryant, maybe. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, 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 I mean, it's asking for it's, it's asking a lot to get two of those, you know. Right, I mean? but it's yeah, but it's it's one of the few situations where it's very okay to go one out of two. <laughs> very okay to go one out of two. So that, that, there's not, nothing wrong with that at all. Thank God it wasn't Kerry Kittles. He was outstanding in his uh, workout. He was outstanding. There, there was no surprise there. I, 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 in retrospect, can't can't give you a good answer that that, that I feel comfortable with. Mm-hmm. He was also, and as which would come as no surprise to to in, with looking back on in retrospect, he was so articulate, so well. He 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 knew who he was. He knew what he needed to do, and he was really very. He was impressive at every uh, juncture, every every point, and. We we didn't date. Hey, it was good for the rivalry, though. You know, I mean, it's like then 08 happens, <laughs> and then you know, and then we see him in the finals. We beat him in the finals. I mean, I I, I like how it worked out. And I loved Antoine Walker, by the way. So. Yeah, I, I did too. But it's just like you know, that that's just that's just something that had to be asked. Obviously, I I, no, of I was thinking about that. You know, so I mean, Antoine played 14 years, so it's not like he was out the league in three or four years. Like he was still a very successful pick. Obviously, I, I know you guys didn't draft this next guy, but obviously his, his Kentucky teammate, Walter McCarty, gets drafted 20th by by New York, and then he ends up coming over. I mean, so yeah, I mean, you know, we, we had a good run with some Kentucky guys, and you know, uh, some guy named Paul Pierce gets drafted a couple of years later. So you know, we, we did all right. <laughs> well, I, I I was on the other side of that in in Denver, and we elected to pass on 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 Paul Pierce. Paul. Yeah, you got Ray LaFrance instead, right? Like his teammate. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And I I I think, yeah, the hindsight's always a wonderful thing. But in in looking at Rafe, he. He got hurt, and he got hurt. He got he really ruined his name, and it was it took a while to figure out that he just could not play anymore. Yeah, there's no way to predict that kind of stuff, right? I mean, it's like an injury like that. You know, it's like you can't you can't draft based on maybe his knee will get hurt. Yeah. No, of course not. Of course not. And that's what we did. That was, that's what with uh, I was I was working with Dan Issel at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Devin Nuggets legend. Yeah. ABA guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So. I just have one last question. Just, you know, yeah. as somebody who who kind of lived through and, and was working in these different eras of basketball, I, I think a lot these days about kind of how where we are we are now with basketball, the kind of player empowerment era. I think there's positives to it. I think there's, you know, definitely downsides and negatives to it. You know, throughout this this show, you've been talking about the 70s Celtics, great heart, you know, 69, a team that had to you know, grit and grind for everything they got. The 80s comeback wins. That character that those Celtics teams had, and, you know, there was teams like that you can name in the 90s. The Bulls, you know, they, they had teams like that. The Knicks had teams like that. In this era, do you see a difference in in players, uh, in their attitudes, in, in, like, how they play? Do you think that the same kind of winner exists as it used to? Or do you think maybe it's just how we interact with the league? or Or do you think that that kind of, grind and, and heart that you saw in your Celtics teams 
are you are we going to see that again? Is that is that is another team like that going to come along ever again? It's a tough. That's it's tough to say because I look back on those teams that we talked about and they were me. Right. They were. They weren't. I mean, clearly they were their own men, but they were. We were. We were together in this, and so it. it I understand that. I, I. I don't understand necessarily that in another context where I don't have that insight. So I, anytime, look, you have a team that has Dave Cowens on it, or you have a team that has <laughs> Marcus Smart on it, they are going to be different than those same very te- those very same teams and group of players if they're not there. And those two are, 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 are good examples of it. And when, one of the things that, that, that happens when you have players like that, there's a loose ball. The first thing the other team does is what? Look, look to see where, where Cowens was. Yeah. Where yeah, is Dave Cowens? Yeah, where's Marcus Smart? Right. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and, and more so I'm going to, I have more familiarity with, with, with Dave, with, with Dave Cowens than I, than I do with, with Marcus Smart. I watch from afar, but the, the issue is simply this. A loose ball, he's going for it, no matter what. Now, he may get the ball. He may get possession, but he may also break your leg in the process. <laughs> it doesn't care. And while you're processing all of that, he gets the loose ball. And that's a that's a trait, and that's a an asset that hopefully isn't offset by other things that can happen, uh, that where emotions take precedence and so it, it's a it's a it's a tough thing to, to to for these players to be able to get the most out of it without having a downside aspect to it as well i i i you know i i think they play just as hard i think there are different things that happen they, they i think there's their travel is easier there a lot of things are easier a lot of things are harder and you know i i look <laughs> ridiculously i look at i look at i look at players making uh, i don't know six seven eight million dollars and i feel bad for them what happened what, <laughs> what was their agent thinking of you know now, it's a different world so very different uh, coming from a gm that's kind of that's kind of big you know, what happened because you know you're, you're the you're the guy that would want to offer them less than that right well Sure, but but uh, i'm just looking at what the scale is now this, it, that's what, right exactly right <laughs> It's just a it's just a different world. Larry Bird would have got two fifty right now, <laughs> easily. No, I said Larry Bird would have got about two fifty right now. I feel like two hundred fifty mil easily. Five years <laughs> max max deal. <laughs> so yeah. last questions from from me, Jen. Who, if if you're at liberty to to say or, or wish to say, who would you say is your best draft pick, and who was your best free agent signing? Well, let's start and, and clarify one thing. None of this was me. All of this was us. And us starts with Red Auerbach. Now, when, I, when, we, when we came back from winning in 80, uh, 86, and we had the draft approaching, we had, we had won on a, on a Sunday, and the draft was 10 days later. later. And we, so we, we convened and got together with all the scouts during that week and did a, a you know a whole bunch of evaluations that uh, were just 
they were just continuations of what we had been doing with respect to evaluating the potential players in the draft. I got a request from Channel 4, Bob Lobel, to come and do a live uh, shot from, from my office at that time, which was on 150 Causeway Street. And Bob came with, with, his, with his crew, and he starts by... You know, you guys have spent, uh, you guys won the championship a week ago. You've spent all this energy on getting getting everything you could out of the, this team. And we're all proud of you. But are, the draft is coming up. Are you going to be ready for the draft? And I said, Bob, we can chew. We can you know, walk and chew gum at the same time. We can multitask. But we've been doing this for a long time. What we're going to do is every, we've, we spent the week evaluating, reevaluating. And we're told everybody to go home. Take this. Take the uh, weekend off. If you want to watch more film, you can come in. But we're not going to plan to meet until Monday. The draft is Tuesday. And I said, what we plan to do is get together on Monday, sit down, go over everything, reach a consensus, and that's the guy we'll draft. I had an epiphany. I'm thinking to myself, who the heck am I kidding? So I said, unless, of course, Red Auerbach wants to draft somebody else, in which case, that's the guy we'll draft. <laughs> and, uh, that was the reality of it. The reality of it, this was Red Show. It was always Red Show. And we, we provided lots of, of support. And I think we did a really good job in all of it. And, and, and Red, was, um, Red was tough on, on, on scouts. On, on making certain they could defend their views. So he could be, he could be persuaded, but Red was a force too. So he, he, as far as free agents are concerned, we didn't do a lot of free agent signings, as you may have, may have noticed. I mean, Xavier McDaniel comes to mind, but he didn't play long. But I, 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 I'm, at a, I'm at a loss to tell you who. Well, Jan Volk, we could sit here for hours and have you just tell us, Countless stories about your time with the Boston Celtics and the NBA during the time you were there. So we're, we're going to have to have you back on to do that. But you know, looking at your tenure with the Boston Celtics in any capacity, in the time you were there, the team only missed the, the playoffs four times. So you may have been a good luck charm. I know it was us, but you may have at least been a good luck charm. Let me let me tell you what I one thing apropos of that. I had a basketball. I had a number of basketballs in my office, but I had one particular ball. It was sitting on a hand like it was being shot, and it had two prominent signatures on it. I, I hate to demean people, uh, but the the two the two signatures were Sidney Wicks and Curtis Rowe, and those were the signatures that were most prominent that I could see. And I would look there periodically whenever I felt like things weren't going so well and realize they could always be worse. And that was a reminder for me. <laughs> uh, well, that's a, that's a good way to end. So Jan Volk, former general manager of the Boston Celtics and a man who wore many hats with that organization. And now, as we've heard, famously summoned uh, by the great Red Auerbeck into the Boston Celtics locker room to execute a trade. But Jan, I, I, I know personally you don't have much uh, in the way of social media, but where can people find you and uh, what are you up to? I hope they don't find me. No, I'm, I'm as you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very active in, 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 in local college sports well, with photogra the photography for schools, for colleges. And that, that's, a, that's a job that I enjoy, but it's time consuming. 
and it and it's regular. It's a, it keeps me keeps me busy. So they're not probably not going to find me. Maybe you might see me, you know, at a at a, at a college um, sporting event. But well, we always do. You always show up somewhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Jan, oh, go ahead. No, no, that was right. That was right. Well, Jan Volk, right. thank you very much for joining us here. I'm missing the point for Rayshon Buchanan, Dave Clark, and Craig D'Alessandro. We thank you for listening to our interview here with former general manager of the Boston Celtics, Jan Volk. We'll talk to you next time. Welcome to Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a bit of a different type of show. I'm Sarah B, and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing, relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the City of Angels. My IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Electric acid. Electric acid. Welcome to Tuning In To Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonise your mind, body and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together we explore vibrations, frequencies and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Electric Acid.